If you have a Bible or you'd like to turn up to Luke 2 as we look at this journey of transformation together. In life, we can have many life-changing journeys. Maybe you can remember your first journey to a new school. That's pretty life-changing. Maybe a journey to church for your wedding day. Very life-changing. Maybe a journey to hospital for the birth of your child. Or maybe it's a journey to workplace, to a new job. Or maybe it's a journey to a graveyard for a burial. Many journeys we can make in life which really impact and change us. They were thinking today about the journey of the shepherds. It was a short journey. They were in that same region where Jesus was born. It was short, but it was really life-changing for them. And we need to understand that we all need to be changed. We all need to be transformed because of sin. And what we get from this passage here are lessons about how this change happens. Transformation that is spoken of here is all about Jesus, the Savior who has come, about coming to know and encountering Him. We all need to journey to meet Jesus, and then we all need to journey on with Jesus. That's how change comes into our lives, meeting Christ and going on with Christ. Now, Jesus is the Savior that is born here. That's how He's spoken of. And what we see here, first of all, is the glory of the Savior. Now, initially, there's just one angel who appears, and yet we read there in verse 9, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And so, we read here that even from one angel, there was tremendous glory that absolutely terrified these shepherds. Now, these shepherds were not wimps. They were the, the cowboys of Bible times. These were tough characters, but they were terrified even by the presence of one angel. Now, the glory that was reflected from this angel, it speaks of a, a brightness that was truly awesome. It comes at night, it leads to great fear, and the angel then needs to act to comfort him and says in verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be all the people. The angel realized that has to, he has to control the situation and help these men who are so terrified by his presence. But the glory that came from this one angel is then superseded by the presence of a great multitude there in verse 13. Suddenly there is with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. Now, how much more glorious must this have been? A multitude of these bright, shining angels now up here. If one terrified them, what would be the glory of a multitude? And how frightening must that have been? But let's remember this. The word angel in the New Testament is a word which just means messenger. These glorious, majestic, awesome creatures 
were just messengers sharing the news of the Savior's birth. And we always understand in life that a messenger is never anywhere near as glorious as the person who sends them or the person that they're speaking for. And so, if these angels are so glorious and majestic that terrify these men, how much more glorious is the Savior that these angels are speaking about? Now, the angels, these messengers, they, they realize that all the attention, all the glory must not be on them. And that's why in verse 14 we read them saying, glory to God in the highest. They want the attention not to be on themselves, like the first angel. They want the attention to be on God, to be on the one who is born, who is Christ the Lord. The Christ who is divine. The Christ who is the glorious, majestic God of all eternity, who deserves all of the glory and the honor. And as we think of how the glory of the one being born is so much far above the angels, we think of how in his life at different times that, that glory just broke through. You think of when he calmed the storm. And when he calmed the storm, the the disciples were even more terrified than they were of the storm. And they said, who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Something of his worth was beginning to hit them. We think of the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus went up with Peter, James, and John, and he became so bright that if you read the accounts, they just don't have the words to describe. There's some, one of the accounts sticks, he was whiter than anything that the world could bleach. <coughs> it was just so awesome. And poor Peter, he began to speak. He didn't know what he was saying. He was so consumed by the glory of Christ. Or think of Paul on the Damascus road. And at noontime, this light appears to him that is brighter than the sun. And he falls down blinded. The one who is born has a glory a majesty that is beyond us. And this is important because it is only such a glorious and divine Savior that can deal with the very depths of our sin. Sin is something that is so powerful. It's something that's so destructive that only a Savior with the greatness, the glory, and the power of infinite God can lift us out of the sin. People who, who don't think they need a divine, a mighty, almighty Savior like Jesus, they just don't understand the power of the sin that's in their lives. The Bible teaches us that this sin, it, it blinds people. It corrupts our hearts. It twists every part of us. It paralyzes people spiritually. It makes people spiritually dead, incapable of any spiritual good. This sin separates us from God. <coughs> it brings such a barrier down that we can't take away. It brings down God's wrath. This sin takes people to hell forever. This sin is so powerful 
This sin is so destructive that it only can be a divine Savior, a Savior who is glorious God, who can break that hold of sin in our hearts and lives. So the glory of the Savior, what we see in the angels is a little bit of his reflected glory. And then secondly, we see here the grace of the Savior. So this Savior, he's glorious, he's divine, but bit by bit we see in this account some truths revealed about him which speak of how amazing his coming is. Truths which highlight the grace behind his coming. Now the first thing we see about the Savior in verse 11 is that he is born. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, the reason why this is so amazing and such a sign of grace is because the Savior who is born is the Lord. He is divine. He is God. Now, the birth of a child is something truly wonderful, but we would not normally say that the birth of a child is amazing. But it is the fact that this child to be born of Mary, a descendant of David, the fact that he is also God that makes <coughs> excuse me, his birth so amazing and so unique. Paul seeks to get this across in Philippians 2. There in Philippians 2 and verse 5, he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped or literally to be held onto, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And Paul is saying, do you see what an amazing thing is? That this one who is equal to God, this one who is God, that he comes to be born as a human being. Paul is saying the one who is equal of God, it's incredible that he comes into this world to be born like this. This is a, a tremendous act of humility. It's a tremendous condescension on behalf of God the Son. In 2 Chronicles 6, we have King Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the, the temple at Jerusalem. And during that prayer, he says this, but will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot continue. How much less this house that I have built. And so Paul is, or Solomon's in there, he's built this vast temple. It was truly an amazing structure. But as wonderful and as glorious he's saying, can God, who even the heavens, the highest heavens, can't contain me so fast, can God come and live in a house like this built by man? But what we're reading about here in Luke 2 is something even more amazing. The God who even the highest heavens can't contain, he comes to be joined to a human nature, to be born of a woman as a tiny, human baby. 
Now, the birth of a child, as I said, is a wonderful thing, but let's face it, the birth of a child is a, a pretty messy and disgusting thing at the same time, and yet the God of glory has come down to be part of this. Part of this process of birth, part of this process to be born, not in a lovely palace, not to be in a very hygienic hospital to be born there, but to be born and placed in a manger among animals. This all is to highlight how low the Son of God has come down in order to be the Savior of this world. He's come down into not just the squalor, as the hymn puts it, <coughs> of a drafty stable, but he's come into the very squalor and dirtiness of sinful humanity. Going back to Philippians 2, Paul says, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, <coughs> being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Paul is saying is there on the cross, he who had no sin became sin for us. He who is glorious God, we, we just can't imagine the depths he's come to <coughs> by coming down and going all the way to the cross. How low he would go, symbolized by his birth and being placed in a lowly manger. Christ came so low in order to lift us up to God. Christ came low in order that we could experience the peace that the angels spoke about so that we can be reconciled to God. <coughs> Due to sin, we're at enmity with God. Due to sin, God is our enemy. Our hearts are hostile to God. Due to sin, God's wrath hangs over our heads. And Jesus alone, by coming into this world, the one who is both God and man, the one mediator between God and man, he alone can take away that hostility, take away that wrath, and be the true source of peace between us and God. In Romans 5, which we read earlier, says this, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a peace not that we earn. This is a peace not that we work for by our good deeds or religion. This is a peace we receive as we trust in Jesus. Then we become God's friend. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. So we have seen the glory of the Savior. We've seen the grace of the Savior who comes down so low. And finally, we consider the response to the Savior. And Jesus is the Savior who must be responded to. And what we have here in the shepherds are wonderful guides to show us how we need to respond to the Savior. First of all, in seeking the Savior. Verse 15 when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby 
lying in a manger. There is no hanging around here. <coughs> There's no holding back here from these shepherds. They went immediately. They went with haste. They didn't think, oh, what about the sheep? What about this or that, the other thing? They realized their priority had to be seeking this Jesus. Now, we cannot go physically to Bethlehem. We can't get in the car and go to Bethlehem today and see this baby Jesus. But we can go spiritually <coughs> to Bethlehem through faith. As we delve into what the Bible teaches, what the Bible teaches about Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, we can meet with this Jesus. The wonderful thing is that when we open our Bibles, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be transported in our minds, we can be transported in our hearts and our thinking to these places and meet with the Savior. In our thinking, in our meditation, we can go in our hearts from a huckle to Bethlehem. Through the amazing work of the Holy Spirit, we can get such a sense of being there. But even more amazingly, as we meet with God's Word through the power of the Spirit, the Christ of Bethlehem can go from Bethlehem to us in a huckle and meet with us here. So it's through the Word, it's through the ministry of the Spirit that we can really meet with Jesus day by day. But the second thing we see here is understanding the Savior in verses 16 to 17. Verse 16 says, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Now my question is, look at verse 17. When they saw it, what was the it that they saw? Well, I'm sure it wasn't Jesus. They didn't call Jesus an it. It was a he. So what was the it? Well, you go back to the previous verse. It is the manger. It is the fact that Jesus was lying in a manger as the angel had said it would be. Now, there could have been many different babies in Bethlehem at that time, but they would be sure of finding the Savior because he would be the only one who would be lying in a manger, lying among the animals in their feeding trough. And when they see the baby in the manger as the angel said it would be, then reality hit them. If you look at this verse, it's as if something suddenly clicked with them. It's as if the truth is so confirmed in their hearts that they can do nothing but now talk about what the angel had delivered to them earlier. I think sometimes we look at this verse and the picture we get is that they saw the baby and then they go out and talk about the baby. And that may have happened later on. But I think what we're talking about here in verse 17 is they saw the baby and immediately they have to talk about what happened with the angel. They're in the presence of Mary and Joseph and others who were there at that time. Before this, in hearing what the angels had said, they had a message. And even though that message came through glorious angels, it was still only a message. It was still only a story. 
But now at the manger, when they see Jesus in the manger, the message has become a reality in their lives. Jesus has become a reality to them. Now, you all know the Christmas story. I'm sure if I stopped halfway through what I read earlier, many of you could have gone on and recited it in your head. My question to you is not do you know this story, not have you heard this story. Has the Jesus of this story become a reality to you so that you are never the same again? Has Jesus impacted and grabbed your heart? Has Jesus transformed you, made you into a new creation through coming to meet with him? You see, every time we read the Bible, this should be our prayer, whether it be at Sunday worship and midweek or reading in our own homes, this should be our prayer. Not just that we read a story and get our duty done for the day, but that we meet with Jesus. We encounter Jesus. We are transformed by that relationship with Jesus, which develops through that. So we have seeking the Savior, understanding the Savior, and then thirdly, glorifying the Savior, verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying, praising God for all they'd heard and seen, as it had been told them. Their lives were changed. Now they had real new life and purpose within them. Uh, can I say this respectfully? In a sense, they became Presbyterians. They now understood that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Now their lives were about Jesus. Probably their lives before this were about sheep, about making money, about making a living, about their families. Now their lives were about him. Has this happened to you? Have you so responded to the Savior as these shepherds did in seeking and understanding him? in encountering him, in glorifying him, has your life been turned upside down by Jesus? Has Jesus become the big picture to you? Has Jesus become the center of who you are? You'll see a wee picture coming up of probably of one of the, the greatest war films that had ever been made, The Bridge on the River Kwai, made in 1957, 1-7, Oscars. It's a story about British soldiers who are held captive by the Japanese in Thailand, and they're being forced to build this bridge to help the railway that the Japanese are building at that time. The British soldiers are under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Nicholson, played there by Alex Guinness. And initially, they're being forced and the officers are, were being forced to go and do this work. And the officers resisted it. It was against the Geneva Convention <coughs> for officers to be forced to do manual work. They resisted. And things aren't going well. And it's progressing very slowly. And then Colonel Nicholson decides, you know, it would be better for his men 
instead of reluctantly doing this to take pride in this, it would be good for their morale. And if they build a really good and proper bridge, it would be a long-standing monument to the engineering of the British Army. And so things change. He gets his men who are engineers to design a new bridge, and the men work hardly, and even the officers get involved in building this bridge. And the day comes in the film where the, the bridge is being opened. There's a great train of dignitaries from the Japanese army are coming for the opening of this bridge. And as Colonel Nicholson, if you remember this story, is having a last look around, he, the water has dropped in the river below, and he begins to see something suspicious. And what has happened is a group of Allied soldiers have come in to bomb the bridge, because, to destroy it, because this really is helping the, the Japanese war effort. But what happens to Nicholson is he's so caught up in his project, he's in a jungle, he's away from the rest of the world, he's so caught up in this project, he actually ends up revealing that the British soldiers are there on this plan to blow up the bridge, and he actually causes the death of several of these soldiers. And there's a scene at the end of the film where he's looking around and there's the dead bodies of these soldiers because of him. He cries out, what have I done? What have I done? And the problem was, he was so caught up in his life. He was so caught up in this activity of building this bridge. He had lost sight of the bigger picture. He had lost sight of the war that was going on. And I think that's a picture of us, that we can be so caught up in our own lives, we can be so caught up in what we are doing, we lose sight of the bigger picture. Our lives are twisted, our lives are not what they should be, because we don't see the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is Jesus. The bigger picture is Christ's plan of salvation. The bigger picture is Jesus who's changing us so we come to know him and to live for his glory and for his honor. So my question today as we finish is, are you like Colonel Nickerson? Just caught up in your wee projects in life? Or are you seeing the bigger picture? Is your life caught up with Jesus? Is your life about knowing him, about serving him, about glorifying the only one who can bring you into peace with God and save you from your sin? We've seen the glory of the Savior. We've seen the grace of the Savior. We've seen the needed response of the Savior in seeking him, in understanding him, in living for his glory. May God give us that grace.